praise the Lord, that we would truly have a heart to praise you. Father, especially this time of the year as we've celebrated, Lord, your provision to our households, to our families, and to our individual lives. But Lord, as we move into this season, this season has been given to us not so much to celebrate a birth, but to celebrate a rebirth, that people have that opportunity to be born again. And so, Lord, we enter into this time that we enter into so many stores and malls and all, and the commonality is they're playing our song. They're, they're playing these Christmas carols that speak of the gospel message. And so, Father, I pray that we would be your people going out into our society for that express purpose, Father, of telling them about Jesus. And so, Father, just prepare us for that in this place this morning, we ask. To your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you turn and tell your neighbor, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. We get back into our verse-by-verse study through the book of Titus. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, Titus chapter 1. And as always, if you arrived here today without a Bible, we'd like for you to follow along, and there should be one in front of you underneath your seat. But if there isn't and you need a Bible, just raise your hands and the ushers will bring one to you. You didn't bring your Bible, Frank? My goodness. (laughs) Parking lot guys are going downhill fast. (laughs) I won't shame anybody else, just Frank. Before we get started, though, Mrs. Pastor Mike would bring some holiday cheer to you. That's my water, and those are my mints. And don't turn the TV channel. I'm watching a football game. I misplaced my uh, good glasses, and so I have these glasses on. They fall off. Hang on. Um, I've been gone for three weeks. A lot of you know because I was helping our daughter in Washington who had had her her, um, second child. And so I asked my husband if I could come up here and encourage you guys, the ladies, to get your tickets for our Christmas dessert night. Um, The theme is called The Promised One, um, John the Baptist disciples went to Jesus and asked him if he was the one they had been expecting and Israel was expecting a Messiah and that's um, what the theme of our retreat is he was the one that was promised the Messiah the promised Messiah and he he is the promised one and he has promises that for us to enter into um, so that's the theme that then the dessert night is going to be on December 6th um, and it's going to start at 6 o'clock, and we're going to start with an apple cider social so you can come and have fellowship and talk and just mingle. And then at 7, we're going to have worship with Christmas worship, you know, um, focusing on Christmas songs. And then my friend June Hesterly is going to bring us the word. She's a senior pastor's wife. She's a beloved Bible study leader. Her specialty is the Holy Spirit. Um, she'll teach you not only um, – she'll, she'll leave you wanting more of Jesus, and she'll teach you how to get there. Um, we're going to have prizes and door prizes, and the tickets are only eight bucks. And um, 
right here is everybody gets a, 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 a little gift and in each side in each gift is something different so um, for you to find out what your gift is you got to come so I hope you'll come thank you so pretty isn't she go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word Titus chapter 1 I'll be starting at verse 5 we'll go to verse 9 and get into our study Apostle Paul writing to this pastor this man named Titus on the Greek island of Crete he says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appointing elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation but or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. Father, again, as we open up a section of Scripture that causes examination, I pray, Father, that we would reach forward to that higher calling that these these details of who a pastor should be, that, Lord, we should see that even the common congregant should adhere to these things. But, Lord, it's this time that we take an evaluation of the man who stands behind the pulpit, wherever that pulpit may be, whoever that man may be, and, Father, that we would see your direction that has been given so that, Father, we know that our church is, is in your will. And so, Lord, I pray as we look at the position here behind the pulpit that father i truly would live up to these things preach your truth and father we would see the church just be the better off for it we pray in jesus name amen go ahead and be seated so what we're looking at in this letter to this man titus is the character of a christian congregation what a church is to be now last week we looked at the authority of the one who had written this epistle the apostle paul we saw that this man was a bondservant or a willing slave. He's only doing what he's been commanded to do in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's also an elder in the church. Elder, more mature, no, no doubt about that as far as age, but also in his walk with the Lord. He wrote this epistle to a pastor named Titus. This man is a Gentile convert. He was far away from the promises of God, the Word of God, but God has now brought him near and even put him into the work of ministry. This is a man of good reputation. Titus, he worked hard building his Christian name so that he would not detract from the Word of God. And at this time, he's a guide to a church full of Cretans. It's just what he's been given. It's who he's been given. It's where he has been called. His characteristics... Well, we see a little bit of a picture of that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 18. Paul says, did Titus take advantage of you? He was in Corinth at one time. Did he not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Didn't he exemplify the Lord Jesus Christ as Christ has worked in and through our lives? The apostle Paul could say, didn't Titus do that? 
And you should be able to look at the pastor even today. Is he doing the same thing? Because the directions given, they haven't changed. It's the same Lord. And so there needs to be the same example that is set. We saw the twofold purpose for this epistle, the themes of the epistle, in verses 5 of this chapter, but also in chapter 3, verse 8. First, chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I have commanded you. And then in chapter 3, verse 8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So in order to set in order, Paul encourages Titus to consider those who stand behind a pulpit and those who sit in a pew. Today, we'll look at the man behind the pulpit. Next week, it's your turn. We'll look at those who sit in a pew. And I'm thinking, man, this could be a, uh, a double-edged sword or, or whatever. They may not like the person standing behind the pulpit, and people may leave the church. And then the people who say the next week may not like what I say about the people sitting in the pew, and they may leave the church. But we continue on in the Word of God. And those who are honest evaluators of themselves are going to be those who thrive in the Lord Jesus Christ, whether behind a pulpit or, 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 or sitting in a pew, whatever it might be, because again, the goal needs to be the same, that we truly want to see this character and our character be revealed as that of a Christian congregation. And so Paul was wanting Titus to construct a church using a, full, a few good men and a couple of willing women. See, the problem in the Cretan culture of the day, they were known as not being very honest, and they were not very motivated in what they did do. We see this in verse 12 when it says, One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Not a good flock to draw from when you're wanting to build a church, but when you think about it, some were such as us, or us, some of us were such as that. We, we could say the same thing about us if we're honest in the evaluation of ourselves because it's always imperfect people who God uses to build his work. And so he had commanded this man again in verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appointing elders in every city as I have commanded you. And so we've got to consider now, as he set this in order, the person who is standing behind the pulpit. Because the person who is standing by, behind the pulpit needs to reflect the Lord Jesus Christ, needs to be immersed in the Word of God. And so the first thing consider, to consider in a Christian congregation in this man standing behind the pulpit is, well, is he dedicated to that purpose? Is he dedicated to that purpose or his own purposes. So apparently Paul at some point commanded Titus to plant churches. More than likely, I'm sure when he was there, he did so with Titus and they went around planting these churches. But also now it's important that he goes into these surrounding cities and he starts appointing elders. They've had time to be established. They've had time to grow. Now it's time to set the leadership as the leadership needs to be set. And it's even possible that these churches that were planting, the leadership, maybe the leadership that was put there at the beginning, is now seriously lacking. 
Paul may be hearing reports back and something needs to be done, something needs to be changed here. And so the Apostle Paul, he seems to be aware of some of the issues that are going on among the people in the churches within these cities. If you look at verses 10 and 11, it says, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole household teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. So there's some things that are going on that just aren't right. Now, when things are going on within the body of Christ and really any organization that just are not right, well, the problems within the congregation can usually be traced back to the leadership. You see this in the sports world. We're entering the end of college football season and already coaches are starting to lose their job. And you can say, well, how is it really the coach's fault when a team loses? Isn't it the players? Well, the responsibility, it always lies at leadership. The condition of a church, the responsibility, will lie at the leadership of that church. We see it in the business world. How much more so should it be within the body of Christ? And so I need to take responsibility of the things that go on within the church. We so like to embrace the good things, the joyful things, but we need to be just as accountable in the difficult things that occur. So Titus needs to revisit these churches and appoint pastors and elders, spiritually mature men and women, to bring them up in the way of the Lord. Now when he says here, set in order the things that are lacking, that's a medical term. It's a term that is used of a surgeon who needs to set a bone. How many people here have had a bone set before? Raise your hand. Did it hurt? Sounds like it would hurt. I've, never, I've broken bones but never had to have one set. Matter of fact, I even know people that had a broken bone, didn't go to the doctor right away, and they had to have it rebroken in order to put back the right way. Now, when you set something like that, there's going to be the pain, as you just saw testimony. But the pain is for the betterment later on of the whole body. And so I would imagine part of setting in order is out with the old and in with the new. And out with the old can be a hard thing. We just saw in Timothy that we're not to lay, on, lay hands on anybody suddenly to put an immature person in the place of leadership. But here, the church is spreading like wildfire, and I would imagine some people who ought not to have been there got placed there, and now they need to be removed. Just like a bone that's out of joint, there's going to be that painful time, but that painful time will be for a future betterment. Now, when it comes to pastors and elders, somewhere along the line, we in the church today have gone off course. I think we need to make an honest evaluation of who the pastor, who the elder is to be. Now, this extends all the way through to the various ministries within a church, but it's got to start at the man who is standing behind the pulpit. Where have we gone off course? Well, first of all, even us within Calvary chapels, we've exalted and honored pastors beyond really what we should. The only reason that a pastor should be respected is because of the respect that he would have for the Word of God. The only reason that a pastor should be honored, if he's honorable in his conduct. If those things don't apply, then that particular person well, we know they needs to be replaced because the Word of God has to be to the forefront. In James chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Brethren, let not many of you become teachers because you'll be held to a higher degree 
of accountability. And what he's talking about there, he's talking about the things that you're telling that church or whoever it is you're teaching, those people should have a reasonable expectation of you doing those things in your life. And so really your life needs to be apparent and transparent. It needs to be apparent to all that you're walking in the Lord in a transparency that there's not a hypocrisy. Because hypocrisy, hypocrisy is one of the great cancers within Christianity. It's that which is going to destroy souls and turn people away. So it's that which we have to, I need to, but again, the things that I speak to me, they do apply to your lives as well. We've got to see that they don't exist in our lives. And now, how does this work for you? I mean, I can turn people away from this congregation as I put on the two-faced act of hypocrisy. But how much more so even in your own household as you're raising up a child, you're bringing them to church and teaching and training them in the ways of Christianity here, and you're Mr. Poster Boy for Christianity while you're here, but at your home, you're living a life that is completely contrary to the Lord. And if you're living a life that is completely contrary to the Lord, think of the hypocrisy and the damage that you're doing in those young lives. Because a kid will look at that and say, I don't want anything to do with that. And far be it from us that we would cause a little one to stumble. So, the person behind the pulpit, they should be respected for their work. They should be honored for their example but not exalted because of their position. But on the other hand, neither will the person behind the pulpit be flawless or faultless. Nobody lives a perfect life. See, it's at this time that I should have Mrs. Pastor Mike come back up and give an account of Mr. Pastor Mike. She could tell you of all of my faults. I could bring my kids up here, and they could tell you of my faults and say, he's not a perfect person. Am I playing the hypocrite at that point? No, I'm not presenting myself as being perfect. I'll tell you right out, I'm an imperfect person. I'm very imperfect. And I know a lot of pastors, and they're no jewels either. It's just, why? Because we're, we're, we're just sinful people who've been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're covered by the blood of the Lamb, and seek to push forward in the Word of God. And these are the people that God uses as much as the qualifications that are listed here and elsewhere that they've been given to us, we try with all of our hearts and souls to follow them, and we thank God for the grace of God that has been bestowed upon us all so that we could live a holy life and be honorable in the sight of God. So as we go through the list of the next few verses, Titus was to find men who worked at some of the things that well, that they were failing in, and other things they were to embrace the victories, but they needed to see exactly who they were to be. Not, not only who they were to be, but as, again, the congregants sitting in the pew were to look at them and see that they exemplified these things. Again, not in perfection, but at these things that they have set their heart to work at so they would not detract from the Word of God. One other thing, notice here, and this is important to see, when picking a pastor, God's guidelines, God's guidelines, well, he, he, he encourages us, he tells us to look at a man's godliness, not his giftedness. We'll so look at somebody's talents and obedience, I'm sorry, talents and abilities and seek to exalt them or put them in a position based upon them, but that's not the standard that God used. Now, it needs to be gifted, it needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit, 
but God looks first at these elements of godliness, that these elements of godliness would be reflected in this person's life. That's the priority of the Lord. So here are God's qualifications for the leaders of his church, for those who are to be, or who desire to stand behind a pew, that they would be held to a higher accountability. Again, verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, appointing elders in every city as I commanded you. First, if a man is blameless. This man must be blameless, and the idea is nothing sticks and nothing stains. There's not some major sin issue that is going on or has gone on in his life that overshadows the grace of God and the calling that God has placed upon his life. There's no accusation that could be brought against this person that should be able to carry any real weight. Again, we're not talking about a perfect person, but really what you need to look at, just use the remainder of the list. This man should not be blameless as he doesn't do things that he's been commanded to do or does do things that he's been commanded not to do. I mean, what if I was here at this pulpit and you found out I was dismissed from a previous church? Pastor Mike, Pastor Mike, you're not blameless. We heard you had an affair with... This isn't true. I'm just using this as an example. You had an affair with a lady at another church. Now, personally, I believe if a pastor has an affair with somebody, again, he's not a perfect person, but nonetheless, that disqualifies him from the work of ministry. Doesn't disqualify him from the church, doesn't lose his salvation, and any of that, but it does disqualify him from standing behind the pulpit. Now, that person, if he was, in fact, still standing behind a pulpit, would have reason for blame to be brought up against him. If he stole money from the church, if he abused the office, if he abused the sheep, if there was a justifiable accusation that is brought against him in these areas, they should be things that disqualify him from the work of ministry. He is stained. And actually, I would have a stained reputation from that point going on and all that I did, if in fact those things were true because that would always come to the forefront of somebody's mind. Now, you can probably, and I can remember some people who seem so godly. I can even remember some people that didn't so much seem so godly because I didn't know them, but just seemed so funny, just seemed so talented, just seemed so, and you can put anything in the blank that causes popularity, but in actuality, there was an accusation that was able to be brought against them. They weren't blameless, and it disqualified them from the work of ministry. So God is rightly represented through blameless conduct, such as Daniel. Now Daniel, there was some jealousy going on in the palace. Israel's in Babylonian captivity. Daniel, through the Lord, has been exalted to a higher position. And there's guys that don't like that, and they want to drag Daniel down. And so they're looking for something, something that they would be able to come up against him. In chapter 6 of Daniel, verse 1, it says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom, and over these three governors of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because of an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. 
So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Now you can look at Daniel and say, That's not a good example to do, use because this guy was perfect. There was nothing bad said against Daniel. Well, he wasn't perfect but he was blameless. He was blameless. Now, how do I know that he's blameless? Because he understood the grace of God. He repented and asked for forgiveness in his prayer in chapter 9. The idea was is that Daniel was not a perfect person. Daniel was a sinner. He was a sinner saved by grace, but he was a sinner. And the worst thing you could say about anybody is that they're a sinner. But you need to see that this man who was blameless that his outward example was his dedication to God. And so now these people that want to bring a charge against them, they examine his life and he's blameless. There, there's nothing here, nothing stained, nothing sticks. We'll use his dedication to God because that's what the world will do. And I pray to the Lord that if somebody's going to bring a charge against me, I pray that it would be my dedication to the Lord. I pray that it would be my faithfulness to the calling that God has given me. Because, well, Daniel had that, had that habit of prayer. Verse 10, now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, now this was something, a, a, a statute that was signed, a law that was signed into effect, that nobody was to pray to anybody else but to the, to the king and to his idols. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room with the windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times a day, and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since the early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before God, and it's then that they went in and made the charge against him. And so would it be to God that the charges that are brought up against us, that are brought up against me, are our dedication to the Lord, are seeking God out and are wanting to please God? If that's the best that they're able to do, then so be it. Secondly, the person <clears throat> who is appointed to maintain order in the church is to be the husband of one wife. If a man is blameless and the husband of one wife. This does not mean one at a time. It doesn't mean the Elizabeth Taylor syndrome, that you have one after another after another after another. Nor is it a requirement to even have one. Now, let's just say somebody's in a pulpit and his wife goes to be with the Lord. Does that disqualify him from the pulpit? That really doesn't make sense. The thing about it is, in the Greek culture, I'm sure especially in Crete, it was common for their leaders to have three main women in their lives. First would be his wife. This would be the woman who would bear his children. Second would be his mistress. This would be the woman who he would take to parties, who was used for show. Third would be his concubine. This would be the woman that he uses for his pleasure. In context, this would make the most sense. And this is what Paul is really writing against because that is not the will of God. Now, I have a blessing in that. I have all three rolled up into one. You can go back through the list and check that out. But that's how it's supposed to be. God has made the two to become one. The reason that my wife and I, to our children... And in the ministry, apart from this church, are able to display the image of God is because God has made the two of us one. 
The way we're able to do so here in the church is because God has caused the two of us to become one. Now, she's not perfect. She's not, because I got a list too. But neither am I, but through the grace of God, we're able to be what God has called us to be. And so we have to understand that God, as God has joined us together so many years ago, 36 and a half years ago, it was for the purpose of achieving his will. We were able to do that to a degree by the grace of God in our children's lives. And again, we're continually working at that in our congregation's lives and in our private lives and in everywhere else. If it was one after another after another, you would probably think, well, how faithful is this man in the commitments that he makes? How faithful is this man going to be in the body of Christ or to the word of God? And as we consider those things, I got to consider the things that I do in private and how I conduct my life in private sooner or later are going to become an exhibit in public and it needs to be found to be blameless. Thirdly, the person who's appointed to maintain order in the church must first maintain his home. Again, verse 6, if a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. In Leviticus chapter 9, there were two sons of Aaron. This was the day that Israel was dedicating the tabernacle and the Holy Spirit was coming upon them, and it was an exciting time, and these guys just went off on the deep end. All of a sudden, they start, his son started worshiping God according to their own way, contrary to what God had called them to do. They were acting as the heathen were acting, and God brought judgment upon them instantly, and they died. And even a little bit later on, Moses told Aaron, you're not allowed to mourn their death right now. You can't go out there with a sad countenance. Again, they're held to a higher degree of accountability. And because of that, the judgment, God thought it right to judge him at that time. Aaron was not to come up against that. See, there's going to be a time when your kids' lives, both spiritual and physical, are out of your ability to have any influence. You have the opportunity right now, assuming you have young kids, is to raise them up in the way that they should go. You have that opportunity to exercise influence over them, but also protect them. Protect them from any outside evil, but even to protect them to a degree from themselves and the decisions that they make. You've been given that opportunity. I have that opportunity over my grandchildren, still even today, and we need to embrace that. We need to be faithful in that, because at one point they're going to become adults. And as they become adults, then they come outside of your sphere of protection to a great degree. And as they are, well, you have the opportunity now to correct them, to bring judgment upon them even sometimes in a spirit of love. But there's going to come a time, if judgment is necessary, that the judge sitting behind the bench could care less what happens to him. He's just going to go to the letter of the law. And just as you have an opportunity to discipline them in love, He's going to discipline them in indifference. And there's not going to be a thing that you're able to do about it. Just as with Aaron and his two sons, there's not a thing, Nadab and Abihu, not a thing that we're going to be able to do about that. God brought judgment. And I would imagine, as a father, I can relate, he probably had to file back. In the, where, where was it that I messed up? Where was it that I, I did wrong? I don't know. We're not necessarily told about that. But nonetheless... It had to be a very heartbreaking, heart-wrenching time. 
And so the man behind the pulpit, he has to have perfect children. Well, that's not going to happen. We've already determined that the pastor and his wife aren't perfect, so he's not going to produce perfect children. But is he working at it? Not perfection, but is he working at raising up godly children? The problem is from the guy behind the pulpit, when his children fail, it's going to be a little bit more public. I've conducted my life as if, you know, that's just the way it is. But from my perspective, I need to work at it. I need to discipline them when it's necessary to discipline them. I need to correct them when they need correction. And I need to give them grace at times when they need to be given grace. And I've got to combine all of these things in a spirit of what God desires to do in their life. And it's that that you need to make the examination of the person behind the pulpit. Does he have that desire? Is he putting forth that effort? And sooner or later, that effort, I'm just going to tell you, guarantee, you're going to see signs of that effort in the lives of the children. That some point, again, children are never going to be perfect, but you'll see elements of faithfulness and you'll see elements of obedience to God as that person puts forth effort in their children. And the idea is, if these kids are just a bunch of, what's a banshee? Does anybody know? I, I was going to say they're a bunch of wild banshees. I don't even know if it's a proper thing to say. I don't have a clue what a banshee is. Somebody Google that and let me know what a banshee is. But if they are a bunch of wild banshees, I mean, morally speaking, then you have to look back at the man behind the pulpit as he ignored his family, as he ignored, set aside the discipline and the ruling of his family, or is he dedicated to all that God has given him? Because he, if he has ignored his family he has ignored the first ministry and the ministry that he knows that god has given him see i know because she was my wife i know because i had a part in her getting pregnant i know because i saw the babies come out of her i was there in the room and so i know that those are my children there's no they even look like me i've tried to disguise myself i shaved off my hair but they still look like me. They're mine. And they're producing kids that kind of look like me, some of them as well. And so they're my kids. And what I'm saying in that is, I know that that's my ministry. I know that God has given them to me as my ministry. You guys, I can doubt that at times. Not because of you, but I'm just saying. There's not, and what I mean, what I'm trying to say in that, there's not the surety that I have here that I have with my kids. Now I'm sure I'm called to be the pastor and minister here, but don't get me wrong on that, but there's a definite knowledge of what God's called me to do in my family that is above every other calling. If you're not taking care of the first things, I guarantee you that person is not going to take care of the other things. Fourthly, the person who is appointed to maintain order in the church must be blameless as a steward of God. That's what we're told in the first part of verse 6 when this man, I'm sorry, where am I at? I got lost here. Man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God. A steward is someone who does not own but manages. And so this man must be faithful in the management of God's people. He must be faithful in discerning God's word. He must be faithful in the managing of the resources that God has given him. He must be faithful all the way down the line in these things. We all must hold on to God's resources with a loose grip, but that grip has to be one that is maintained in faithfulness. 
Remembering all resources, people, and abilities are only on loan from God. God gives for a period of time. And again, as God has given, I've got to keep an account of what God has given us to make the best use of the building that God has given us, to make the best use of the people who sign up for the work of ministry, to see that they have that opportunity to serve God in the capacity to which God has gifted them, to make sure that the children are safe and to make sure that the children are being taught and just not just not left there for an hour as we have opportunity into their lives, to make sure that the sick are taken care of and the sick are visited, to make sure that, well, people who call Calvary Chapel their home are the best-kept, best-fed sheep that there, there is, to make sure if we know somebody is going hungry, that they're fed, if they don't have clothing, that they're clothed, if they don't have housing, that they're housed, that the church would take care of itself, that the people of the church would be a reflection of the love that people have for God first and the love for one another second. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2 says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Fifthly, what a person appointed to maintain order in the church is not to be Verse 7, he's not to be self-willed, he's not to be quick-tempered, not to be given to wine, he's not violent and not greedy for money. A steward works to not achieve his own will, but to achieve its master's will, and that needs to be the priority. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done. That person behind the pulpit needs to be constantly seeking after God's will, and to the best of his ability, accomplishing the will of God. As far as quick-tempered, God's will was not accomplished because Moses was quick-tempered. Remember the second time he told them to speak to the rock? Moses was upset. What was he upset at? He was upset at the people. Moses, you're not to be concerned about that. You're just to convey the message that God has given and care for them the best of your ability. In their disobedience, if they're a stiff-necked people... That's between them and God, and God will deal with it. But God wasn't angry at the people because God understands the people and where the people are coming from. They're immature. They are stiff-necked. They are disobedient, but God is gracious. But Moses misrepresented God by exhibiting anger that shouldn't been exhibited. And that being the case, he wasn't the leader, or he wasn't being at that time the leader that God has called him to be. He's not given to wine. I'm of that mindset, if you're going to be a bishop, if you're going to be a pastor, you cannot drink at all. That's my philosophy, that's my mindset of that. I mean, why do you need to versus why do you have to? Where's your priority? What are you going to be under the influence of? I'll use the example once again. If you have a, an emergency situation, you're in the hospital. You call Pastor Mike, it's 10 o'clock on Thanksgiving evening, and Pastor Mike's been watching football all day and drinking brewskis, and you give him a call, and, huh? Who are you? And then Pastor Mike jumps in his car, drives to the hospital, gets pulled over and arrested for drunk driving. And then up here on Sunday morning, nobody's behind the pulpit because he was given to wine or given to whatever, alcohol, whatever it might be. We're told not to be under the influence of alcohol, but be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Proverbs chapter 31, verses 4 through 7. 
This is probably written of Solomon by his mother Bathsheba. She's given some advice here. She says, it's not for kings, O Lemuel, are you loved by God. It's not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. But she's saying, as for you, it's not. It's not for you. Not violent or greedy for money. You remember Judas Iscariot? He had his hand in the till. He had a desire for money. He was the one who was called the son of perdition. And again, how many pastors out there who acted improperly with the funds of the church are no longer pastors today because of it. Not violent. I don't think you would want a, a, to approach a pastor if you were afraid that you were going to be yelled and screamed at. I hate that. People come up to me and say, Pastor Mike, uh, or no, no, I'll, I'll ask somebody to come into my office. And they say, uh-oh, I feel like I'm in trouble. I feel like I'm going into the principal's office. What do they think I'm going to do? Half of you could probably beat me up in a fair fight. I mean, what am I going to do? I'm not going to yell at anybody or all. I mean, I never have yet. Well, not too many people. But, you know, again, what am I going to do? I mean, I, I try to be, well, well, we'll get there in a little bit because, let me see where are we at here. There is one other thing. Oh, not given to wine, not violent. Not greedy for money, not violent. Now, somebody told my wife the other day, you know what, I really love Pastor Mike because he's so gracious. Now, the only re way that Pastor Mike can really be gracious is if Pastor Mike wants to be violent. Because the only way that God can be gracious is because of the existence of judgment. Now, Pastor Mike is gracious because there's times when it's a lot easier to be violent. I was brought up in a household that violence kind of ruled. Again, I've used the example of my father. When he came walking into the home, it was dead quiet. Is dad in a good mood or is dad in a bad mood? There was this still, even today, as I've said before, there is that, 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 that noise that a Corvair Monza makes that just causes me to break out in a cold sweat. If you don't know what a Corvair Monza is, you're good. It was a, it was a car that I think Chevrolet made them. Yeah, Chevrolet made them, and uh, they used some kind of Corvair, Convair made airplanes, and they used some kind of, uh, I don't know, hybrid motor that was in an airplane. It made a very distinctive sound that you could hear from, I could hear from miles away. And that was the noise of my father's car as he was coming home. And to be ruled by violence, there's no peace in that. That's very unsettling. Now, I'm kind of joking violence, but it's going to be so easy to act or react in that manner. We are to be reacting in a spirit of love that's manifest through grace. Because I keep reminding, as, more, as much as somebody may irritate me here through something maybe they said or did, I can be the same exact way. One time, I'll never forget this. Sometimes I stand at the pulpit and I'm going to say something and God tells me, don't say that. And then I hear myself saying it anyway. And there was this one time when I was behind the pulpit. Now, this was a joke. It was during an election year. And I, I don't remember what I was teaching or whatever. And God said, don't say it. But I did say it. And I said, well, Democrats aren't even Christians. And I was kidding. And it was a joke. And there was a lady that it was the last time she came to our church. And as she left, she told somebody, you tell the pastor that I'm a Democrat. And it's just like, how stupid was I to say something like that? 
One thing, it's not true. Another thing, it's very divisive and very hurting. And I just, I, I mean, did that lady go to another church? Or did she even stop going to church because I said that? And so we've got to be careful of these things because we can so easily point the finger at somebody else, but we've really got to consider ourselves. So what a person appointed to maintain order in the church is to be, verses 8 through 9, we'll just wrap it up here real quick, hospitable and so receptive of others, a lover of what is good and the things that are good, the standard of what is good is in the scriptures, sober-minded, somebody that has a good time with people, but not somebody who's making a joke of everything, not somebody who's always horsing around, just, that means that they're fair, holy, that means they're Christ-like, and self-control, have an element of control over their speech, over their thoughts, and over their actions. Holding fast or clinging to the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort, to go down to the level of somebody else and see them lifted up, and convict those who contradict. So we must consider what is it that is really essential in evaluating the leader of a church. Is it charisma or is it character? Is it style or is it substance? Is it personality or is it promotion? Is it humor or is it holiness? The Bible tells me what the church left to the flesh is going to regress towards. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desire, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. For this type of church, the focus is going to be upon charisma, style, personality, and humor. But the Bible also tells me that a leader goes against this regression of the church. In 2 Timothy 4, 1-2, through 2, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and his, of His kingdom, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For this type of church, their focus for the man behind the pulpit will be character, substance, promotion of the Lord Jesus Christ and not self, and holiness. For one of these churches, the pulpit will be a platform for the word of God. For the other church, the others, the, the pulpit will be a platform for personal prestige. You need to ask, in that church, are converts being one to the Lord Jesus Christ or are they being one to the man behind the pulpit? You, at this church, if you're not a member of this church, maybe you're visiting this church, wherever it might be, you need to take this mindset into the pulpit, not judging that person, but making an evaluation to the Word of God. Because who that person is behind the pulpit that place where the word is supposed to go out will determine will determine what that church is. And remember in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and chapter 3, remember the Lord Jesus Christ in his valuation of the church, he was addressing the angel or the messenger to that church. A messenger to the church, again, was the pastor. Those churches were what they were based upon the man who has been chosen and called to deliver the word of God. Are they doing it in faithfulness, or are they doing it to the detriment of the people? Who's standing behind the pulpit? You must consider that. Next week, we'll consider who's sitting in the pew.
Father, once again, we just thank you, God, that you have called us to the body of Christ. We thank you, Father, for the accountability that we have in your word, but also with one another. That, Father, if anybody is wandering off, that, Father, we would see them brought back to where they need to be. Lord, if myself or if there's anybody else that does not adhere to the qualifications, both pulpit and pew, that we see, may we not be people who are condemning, but may we be an encouragement, again, to bring people back into line, to set in order, Father, how things need to be set in order. And so, Lord, we just thank you, Father, for this day. I thank you for this past week as we've evaluated our lives and give thanks, Lord, to how you work and move in our lives. And I just pray, Father, again, as we enter in to this holy day season, that we would be people, Father, who are, are open to the opportunities that you give us. And, Father, that we be glorifying you through all situations and circumstances. We just thank you, Lord, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? There will be 